are listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, a high school exchange program for students in Jackson and Tlaxcala, Mexico, is helping build bridges both internationally and within the local high school. Being a Latina in a school that is predominantly white, I see the segregation that we kind of face. And not because we're forced to be segregated, but we kind of just do it on our own. Plus, students at Teton High School in Driggs attempt to start a new gay-straight alliance club. I just hope that um, our club can promote an idea of acceptance among our student body. But first, the 2022 election season is heating up. May 27th marked the deadline for most local and state candidates to file to run. And there's no shortage of exciting races in our corner of Western Wyoming and, of course, across the rest of the state. Joining me now for an elections preview is K-12 reporter Will Walkie. Hey, Will. Hey, Kyle. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Let's zoom into the one local state Senate district that's up for election. Incumbent Democrat Senator Mike Aru is running for re-election against a Republican challenger, Steve Doerr. Yeah, absolutely. So quickly, I'll just do some geography. So what this district is, is it runs from essentially the town of Jackson city limits north. So that includes plenty of suburbs. It also includes places like Moose and Kelly and parts of Yellowstone National Park. So if you've lived here in Teton County for a long time, you probably already know who Mike Guru is, our state senator. Uh, He's been a Jackson Town Councilor. He's been a Teton County Commissioner. He's basically done everything before holding the role that he does now. He's a loud voice in Cheyenne. He wears a bolo tie. He owns Jedediah's, which is a restaurant in the airport. He's also one of just two Democrats in the Senate. So he's a huge voice for affordable housing and a lot of Teton County and other sort of Democrat leaning issues in the state of Wyoming and presumably a popular guy. However, he has a challenger, someone who is his friend and a moderate Republican. His name is Steve Dewar. Dewar is moderate, and he was also the head of the Jackson Hole Chamber of Commerce. So he has a lot of background in sort of the economics of tourism, and he makes and he wants to make sustainable tourism one of the major sort of focuses on his campaign. He's also interested in diversifying the economy of the state of Wyoming and also housing and things like that. Um, so it will certainly be a competitive race which is interesting, um, especially for Mike Rue, and we'll see how far Dewar can push him on certain issues. So moving on now to Wyoming State House districts around Jackson, we've got a number of competitive races there, super interesting races. Um, Out of three elections, only one has an an incumbent running, and that's Democratic Representative Mike Yin. His district, 16, covers most of downtown Jackson and East Jackson, south of Broadway, um, down to about High School Road. And Yin is a software developer by trade who's been a really popular representative since he was elected in 2018, started serving in 2019. He's advocated for a lot of critical Teton County issues, including workforce housing and real estate transfer tax. He also successfully co-sponsored a county optional property tax refund program this year. But Yin is now being challenged by a Republican candidate named Jim McCollum. McCollum is the father of Lance Corporal Riley McCollum, who was the Marine from Jackson who was killed last summer during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And McCollum is a carpenter and a poet who says he was inspired to run after his son's death and after an outpouring of support from the Jackson community. So, Will, what's going on with the other two House elections that don't have an incumbent running? 
Both going to be interesting races to follow. Let's start with District 23, which is being vacated by Andy Schwartz, a longtime Democrat, longtime politician here in Teton County. It runs north of Jackson, the town of Jackson, like I was saying earlier, hits Kelly Moose and Yellowstone National Park, parts of Yellowstone National Park, where one unknown candidate, his name is Ryan Sedgley, is running as a Democrat, and he calls himself a proud progressive Democrat in rural America and in rural Wyoming. He can be characterized as absolutely as a progressive, and he wants to push people on things like abortion access, certainly affordable housing, also things like climate change, where he's in ground zero there in Yellowstone. He will be primaried as a Democrat by what should be considered a bigger name, Liz Storer. Um, Storer is a major philanthropist in town. She's also the wife of Luther Probst, who's currently a Teton County commissioner. She should probably be considered the front runner in that primary. However, she is certainly not a shoe in even on the Democrat side. And then once that primary is done, there is a Republican named Paul Vogelheim, who's also a former Teton County commissioner, also a moderate Republican, if you can sense a theme here on what sort of part of the spectrum the Republicans who are running for office around here are doing. Right. A, um, a lighter shade of red is sometimes how we hear about Teton County Republicans, right? A lighter shade of red. And Vogelheim certainly falls into that. He's basically already gone on the record as being super liberal when it comes to certain social issues, but he's a little bit more conservative fiscally. And I think that he should be considered a serious candidate for this district as well, despite the fact that Teton County is relatively blue. Okay, great. So that's District 23. And then we've also got District 22, right? Yeah. And House District 22 runs south of Jackson. You know, it includes parts of Teton County like Wilson and Hoback, but it also includes parts of Lincoln County, including Alpine. That's an interesting district because it's changing a lot. It's shrinking and becoming more blue kind of as Jackson and Jackson politics move south into Lincoln County. And so an independent named Jim Roscoe, who had been a longtime, again, Teton County politician, is retiring, has said he's not going to run. And there's a race to replace him as well um, with a moderate Republican, again, named Andrew Byron, who is runs a fly fishing outfitter in Pinedale, is also a volunteer firefighter in Hoback, and has unsuccessfully ran for Teton County Commissioner. So he's been here for a long time. He'll definitely have support from the Republican Party. And then there's no Democrat running that registered, but there is an independent named Bob Strobel. He's a tech entrepreneur, best known as the person who created C. Jackson Hole, those webcams that you see when you drive into town oh, yeah. that are yep. constantly filming. Uh, mm -hmm. That's him. Bob Strobel. And he he has the endorsement of the Teton County Democratic Party, as well as Jim Roscoe, who ran very left in most issues in Cheyenne. All right. Thanks, Will, so much for joining me today. Thanks, Kyle. You can hear our full elections preview, including a rundown of the Teton County Board of Commissioners and Jackson Town Council candidates on our website, 891khol.org. We also want to hear from you, what are your questions for the candidates? And what are the biggest issues on your mind as you're getting ready to vote? Send me an email at kyle at jhcr.org with elections in the subject line. A group of 16 Jackson Hole High School students visited Tlaxcala, Mexico in May. Not only was it the first time traveling out of the country for some, but it was also the first time visiting the region where many of Jackson's Latino residents trace their roots. 
K-12 Executive Director Emily Cohen was in Mexico for part of the exchange and brings us this story. Unless you're a state dignitary, it's not often that a visit abroad comes with ceremonies replete with the mariachi band, dances, and banquet meals. But that's how Jackson Hole High School students and teachers were welcomed in Tlaxcala. Tlaxcala is Mexico's smallest state, about two hours east of the capital, Mexico City. And the capital of that state, also named Tlaxcala, officially became Jackson's sister city last year. The goal of the exchange was both to connect students in the two communities and to increase the sense of belonging for students of Mexican and Tlaxcalan heritage at Jackson Hole High School. Jeff Brazil is a social studies teacher at the high school and a coordinator of the program. To me, this is maybe the most exciting program I've seen come out of the school in my 20 years here. Um, so we're looking at trying to develop a more inclusive school, um, you know, as, as much progress as the district has made. Um, when I look at our lunchrooms or our hallways, it's very divided between Anglo groups and Latino groups. And so we're People have been immigrating to Jackson from Tlaxcala since the mid to late 1990s. And while some stay for a few years and then return to their hometowns in Mexico, many others have stayed and made Jackson home. Six of the eight Latino students on the exchange have family connections in Tlaxcala. Nicole Checker is a rising senior and one of the main student organizers of the trip. Though she doesn't have roots in Tlaxcala, Checker saw the trip as an opportunity to help bridge the gap between the two communities. Being a Latina in a school that is predominantly white, I see the segregation that we kind of face. And not because we're forced to be segregated, but we kind of just do it on our own. So just kind of... In fact, the goal of the program resonated with a lot of students. More than 80 applied to participate. From Jackson, eight Latino students were selected and eight white students. And that split was intentional. 16 students also participated from the Mexican side of the exchange. 16-year-old Michael Vasquez from San Simeon, Chipinsenco, explains why he got involved. I want to give a good impression from, uh, from, from my country and from my state, so it was something that I felt like was really special. During their week-long visit, students stayed at an 18th century hacienda that was previously used to cultivate maguey, a type of agave. They also got to hike a volcano, visit ancient ruins, and even volunteered at a children's library that Jackson residents helped fund. But reconnecting with family was the highlight of the trip for many Jackson students. The grandfather and uncle of 15-year-old Michelle Zampatuarez surprised her with a visit on her first day. Or rather, they tried to surprise her. I recognize them like automatically because I still remember what they look like. But um, my grandpa and my uncle didn't recognize me. Um, For some of the students' families living in Jackson, returning to Mexico isn't as easy as just buying a plane ticket. Some came to the United States without documentation, so they're unable to leave the country to visit family without a green card or resident status. On the other hand, Visiting the U.S. for relatives in Mexico can also be a challenge. Not only is the cost of travel high, but it can also take a while to get a tourist visa. That's a current barrier for Michelle Zompa Juarez's Mexican family. They applied to go to get visas, but they gave them they gave them the interview till 2023. 
that's just the interview. That's like before like getting approved or anything. Still, even though Jackson and Telescala are 2,000 miles apart, the communities are inextricably linked. I saw a truck with Wyoming license plates in Telescala and people wearing Jackson Hole t-shirts. There was even a home designed in the so-called New West building style, complete with a sculpture of elk at the front gates. For Checker, the student organizer, the trip gave Jackson kids an appreciation of both their own culture and that of their peers. More importantly, it gave Latino and non-Latino students something to connect over. A lot of our English students would sometimes ask us, like, wait, um, should I eat this? Or like, is this good? Or they would like want to dance because we also had like a couple of times where we got all together as a group and we just started dancing. And they'd be like, oh, teach me. I want to know how to dance. Also, personally, I feel like I gained a little bit of culture, too, because, I mean, I was born and raised here and a lot of our students were as well. So, you know, you kind of lose over the years when you're in a predominantly white school, predominantly white community, you do sometimes lose part of your culture. Jackson Hole High School social worker Piper Worthington also says the exchange program plants a seed for an even greater impact in the community. That's because the participating students come home and share their experience with parents, siblings, and friends. I will certainly be curious to see how this translates. You know, I I think in the long run, you know, if you were to like paint a picture, it would be kind of like just a healthy school culture in general or, you know, a healthy community in general where where everyone feels like they have access to the same spaces and, and feels that sense of connection or that sense of belonging. While there's no perfect formula to make that happen, the hope is that the exchange program is one step forward to a more inclusive and connected community. For KHOL, I'm Emily Cohen. just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, June is Pride Month. And while LGBTQ rights are being widely celebrated across much of the country, a group of Teton Valley students say they still need more support. KHOL intern Skylar White has a story on the effort to start a new gay-straight alliance student club at Teton High School in Drake's. Luke is one of three student organizers of the new club. They use they-them pronouns and were only using their first name in the story at their request. Luke says the idea to start the group came from their feeling that Teton Valley isn't always a safe place for LGBTQ-identifying youth, even though it's considered by some to be a liberal bubble. Although it's more liberal than the rest of Idaho, it's still like you're comparing like two shades of gray there. Luke says they haven't faced much personal discrimination at school, but they're often sticking up for other students. So they're hoping a new gay-straight alliance group will help. I just hope that um, our club can promote an idea of acceptance among our student body and that maybe that through possibly like friends of friends joining that 
maybe they can like start to sympathize with the ideas and create kind of a more wholesome, accepting, uh, friendly culture. However, the main hitch is that the club hasn't been approved by the board of the Teton School District yet, which has to give a green light to all new student groups. And Luke's worried it might not go through because they've heard there are adults in the community who oppose the group. But fortunately, there's a good amount of allies within the school, and that's very helpful. And I'm really glad that um, we have some support behind us. But ultimately, as predicted, there's uh, pushback within the community, and I just hope that like we can get this established before it gets out of control. Luke didn't want to get specific about the pushback. Teton High School principal Samuel Zog says he doesn't see why the board wouldn't approve the group, but he also says he can't predict the vote. I mean, I, I don't know how our board will react. Um, the community, I don't know. The school board declined to comment for this story. KJOL also asked Zog about Luke's concerns about bullying, which come during a national wave of anti-LGBTQ and specifically anti-trans legislation. Every student needs to feel safe here at school, and we work through those issues as they come up, and we want to make sure every student has a safe place. I mean, they can identify however they identify themselves, but we want them to be here, be safe at school, Um, You know, the main purpose of being in school is to be at school. Luke says they think legislation like the bill Idaho State House passed earlier this year that would have criminalized providing gender-affirming health care for trans youth violates basic human rights. That's part of the reason they're so inspired to organize. I believe that if we can uh, push our voice out there and become something bigger, frankly, for lack of a better word, then... The idea is that maybe if we can like touch the hearts of like the sympathetic hearts of parents and maybe we can um, influence them to change their minds on the um, LGBTQ plus issue, um, especially with the denial of trans health care. Moving forward, Luke's first priority is getting the club approved. They even have a name picked out that plays on Teton High's mascot, the Timberwolves, Pride of the Pack. But the club is not on the agenda for an upcoming school board meeting yet. Principal Zog says part of the holdup is because the school's legal advisors had to review the club's request to have the Family Safety Network, a community nonprofit, involved. So we were reviewing because we've never had an outside agency be part of our clubs. Um, so we were looking at that and how that, because we have nothing written in policy about that. Zog also says the school needs to confirm who the group's teacher advisor will be. In the meantime, Luke is encouraging community members to ask the board to support the group, even though they acknowledge some residents might not agree. Ultimately, it's about promoting like peace and acceptance, not about um, making people th- feel threatened by our presence. They also hope the club's formation will not only help improve the culture of Teton High School, but also push for change in the greater Teton Valley community. For KHOL News, I'm Skylar White. A new documentary called Dear Sirs tells the story of Wyoming filmmaker Mark Pedry as he retraces the steps of his grandfather Silvio's journey through World War II as a prisoner of war. Next, 
K-12 film critic Jeff Counts interviews Pedri and the producer of the film, Carrie McCarthy, ahead of the screening of the movie at the Center for the Arts in Jackson on Wednesday, June 22nd. Carrie and Mark, thanks for joining on set today. Hey, we're excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're talking about your film, Dear Sirs. And Mark, let me start with you. I know that when you discovered this trove of documents and photos and other material that your grandfather left behind about his time in the war, it's clear from this film that you saw a story that had to be told. But as a film viewer, I wondered if you wondered, with all of the glut of World War II content out there, both in film and on television, were you concerned about being able to find anything new to say in that world? And what did your story give you as new material? Yeah, that's a question we we asked ourselves many times is, you know, uh, is, is there room um, in this genre or, or this storyscape for another World War II story. And I think what we finally landed on was we hadn't seen such a personal story told where it's, you know, following one very specific perspective through the entire experience um, of a prisoner of war from being drafted uh, to, you know, first combat being captured through liberation. And I think that's when the story really came alive was what if we just decided to focus on the smallest moments of this gigantic world event? And uh, I think that's ultimately what convinced us that there was room for this is, is realizing that all of these small stories, um, there's actually so few of those. All of the stories that we see are, they're actually, you know, the big moments of World War II. And as a result, we kind of overshadow um, the more personal ones. The word personal that you just used, I think, is really important with this film because you make a, a comment during the film, uh, Mark, about how the relationship with your grandfather, bicycles were an important part of that. And I won't give that away, but it's clear from anyone seeing this film that the two of you chose to ride bikes along the path he traveled through Europe. You chose to retrace his progress on bicycles. Carrie, I wonder, was it important that retracing those steps be difficult? Did it need to hurt a little bit for this to be as meaningful to you guys as an exploration? Um, so the bikes weren't uh, a way for us to sort of feel what, what Mark's grandfather was feeling. It wasn't, that wasn't the motivation. The motivation was more um, a directorial choice of trying to immerse ourselves in the world at a slow enough pace such that we can spend time at the different locations, if we needed to be nimble and spend a few days here or, or hurry up and go a little bit faster or slower. And then we, we ended up doing in the winter, again, not to feel the experience as much as it was to convey the tone of what it would have been like when Mark's grandfather was actually going on his journey. So we wanted the, the picture to match the tone of the story and what was actually happening. The two of you have traveled the world, I'm sure. You've been all over. But there's something very clear about identifying with Wyoming in this film. What do the two of you hope the people of this state, people like me who live here, will take away from Silvio's legacy and his service? Mark and I were both grew up here in Wyoming. And so um, we have deep roots here. And I think for me, what I would like people in Wyoming to to take from this is to see a Wyoming story, not just a World War II story, but it's also our story, Mark's family story, elevated and put within such a global conflict and a, a global event. And to see that Wyoming stories are a part of big history and they deserve to be told and they deserve to be elevated. And in that same line, Wyoming storytellers, I think, I hope this inspires Wyoming storytellers to keep telling Wyoming stories or if if you want to be a Wyoming storyteller, 
go for it. I want to add a tiny bit to that because I think Wyoming is not what people think it is. Um, I, I think this film is a reminder of, you know, the ethnic diversity of, of people coming from all over the world here. And I think the film kind of embodies the, the spirit of Wyoming, which is, you know, people um, getting captured by an idea and following through with it, but also the community getting behind them um, and not really knowing how to finish, but knowing that it's important enough to start. Our community in Rock Springs rallied around us financially, morally, um, you know, followed us on social media. And it just, they emphasized that what we were doing was important. And I think that you absolutely need that on a project like this. So Carrie, as a last word, tell everybody in Jackson where they can see Dear Sirs. Sure. Um, we're going to be showing it next Wednesday, June 22nd at the Center for the Arts at 6.30 p.m. And We'll be following that with a light reception and a Q&A moderated by Steve Peck from Wyoming PBS. Carrie and Mark, thank you so much for being a part of On Set. It's been great to talk to you today. Thank All you right, so Jeff, much. Thanks a lot. Looking forward to being in Jackson. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. Officials in the greater Yellowstone region gave an update on the damages from widespread flooding Tuesday evening. Two of the five entrances to the national park, Gardner and Cook City, are unlikely to reopen this summer after heavy rains washed out roads and bridges in the area. Bill Berg is a commissioner for Park County, Montana. He says gateway communities in his area will be heavily impacted by tourists being unable to visit. Gardner's a pretty rough and tumble place. It's a company town. It's a Yellowstone town, and it lives and dies by tourism. And this is going to be a pretty big hit. Berg says he's focusing on maintaining critical supply lines and assessing damages to local communities, many of which are still stranded. Yellowstone's superintendent says he hopes southern parts of the park near Old Faithful will open in about a week. In Jackson, campsites are still reportedly available for those changing their vacation plans and driving south. Planned construction of the Moose Wilson Road in Grand Teton National Park has been delayed due to supply chain issues, staffing shortages, and, quote, an overwhelmed local construction industry, according to a park press release put out Wednesday. The change means that the southern portion of the road, which had been closed except on weekends, opens up again and will stay open until July 11th. Parking along the southern portion of the road, including at trailheads, is not allowed, and the Granite Canyon trailhead will also remain closed. Access to the Rockefeller Preserve and Death Canyon Trailhead is still available from the north. A former Jackson resident has been banned for five years from Grand Teton National Park for fabricating a story during the search for missing person Kean McLaughlin. The 40-year-old woman also agreed to a nearly $18,000 fine. She provided a false report to officials in June of 2021, apparently to keep the search for McLaughlin going when she thought it was starting to fade. But her account placed the Irishman far away from where he had been last seen, and public affairs specialist for Grand Teton National Park C.J. Adams says 532 hours of staff time were wasted following up on this detailed, completely made-up account. This kind of report puts um, not only searchers at risk, puts them out in the wrong places and diverts valuable resources. 
Adams says the park is now renewing efforts to find McLaughlin, a 27-year-old who's been missing for more than a year. Specifically, officials are asking locals and tourists to keep an eye out for a red iPhone 12, red Apple Watch, silver chain, and gold rim sunglasses, especially on the trail system headed towards Garnet Canyon and Delta Lake. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.